Whitehead drives to the hole, hangs, and what? Isaiah Whitehead ties it up at 67. Outlet pass, Archidiakono, front court, slips, fires, and that's it! The Seton Hall Pirates defeat Villanova, 69-67, and for the first time in 23 years, their Big East Tournament champion. For the latest in Seton Hall basketball and Seton Hall athletics, this is Courtside Pirates with Chris Pazes. Seton Hall the lead with 1.1 second to go. What a shot by Miles Pop. Thompson shows it. Kale steps back, lets it fly. Miles Kale, 84-83. And Seton Hall knocks off the number nine team in the nation. 84-83. What a win for the Pirates! This weekly podcast will recap every men's basketball game throughout the Pirates season. Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! With special guests along the way, Courtside Pirates will dive into the Pirates season after every game, giving you my thoughts and opinions as Seton Hall looks to return to the NCAA tournament. McKnight will inbound. Powell, they throw it up the Mambo, and at the buzzer! Oh my goodness! This is Courtside Pirates with Chris Pazes. In a game that was 32 years in the making, the Seton Hall men's basketball team helped ease the pain of history as it played outstanding defense and hit some huge free throws down the stretch to defeat the number four Michigan Wolverines in a Gavit tip-off game Tuesday at the Chrysler Center. Welcome and thank you for joining. My name is Chris Paces, the host of Courtside Pirates, and we have an incredible show for you today as Heaven Hill, the current sports director of 89.5 FM WSU and broadcaster of this historic game, joins to talk with us about everything from this massive program victory. It was the first time Seton Hall and Michigan had met since December of 1989. The two teams had also met in April of 1989 in the NCAA Tournament National Championship game, which, as we all know, was won by the Wolverines, riddled with controversy. This is an episode you will be glad that you tuned in for. I would also love to hear from you. Follow me on Twitter at Pazis, that is at P-A-I-Z-I-S, and reach out with any questions you have as they could be answered on an upcoming show. Also, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving a review for the show by scrolling down on the product page. I'm excited to now welcome to Courtside Pirates, Heaven Hill, the current sports director at 89.5 FM WSU, Scene Hall's award-winning radio station, who just returned from Ann Arbor, Michigan, as he called the historic 67-65 to win over the number four team in the country. I had Wilder Lewis join last season, and in keeping with tradition on courtside Pirates, Heaven is gracious enough to join for this season, and honestly, what better timing? 
as a former sports director of WSU myself, I love to get the pulse of what it's like for current students at the best college radio station in the country and see what is new in the sports department at WSU. Heaven Hill, welcome to Courtside Pirates. Thank you, Chris. I'm so honored to be here. You've had a bunch of, of illustrious guests over the years. And, you know, the fact that I get to take part in something like this and, and share some experience that I've had at WSU and, you know, what went down yesterday, uh, this is really exciting for me. Well, I'll tell you right now, this is going to be a good interview. I, to be completely honest with you um, and everyone listening, when we had scheduled this email, uh, when we had scheduled this interview, it was a week prior to the big game versus number four Michigan. Uh, so I had a lot of list of questions that I wanted to ask you and some key talking points that I wanted to really discuss that completely changed after the game that you were on color for last night, which was the game at Ann Arbor. And just the entire scope of this conversation is going to change now because this was by far the most important non-conference victory in Seattle men's basketball history. And you got to be a part of it. Uh, something that very few pirate fans are going to say they ever got to experience live. And as you were there live covering the game for WSOU, what were your initial thoughts when the game clock hit zero? Man, it was just, it was just elation. Like not many people know this, but for weeks, for weeks, like for the longest, I had no idea if we were even going to get to travel to Ann Arbor. Um, when you were at WSU, Tom Chen was the men's basketball SID, if, if I'm correct. And yeah, yeah. now, yeah, now it's, it's uh, Pete Long. So, I've been emailing him and, and Sweeney, the, the women's basketball SID, you know, just trying to set up uh, travel arrangements, you know, obviously with the women's team, we travel directly with them. With the men's team, it's a little bit more different. Like I've been hitting up Pete, like, hey, you know, is this arena allowing student media? Like, is this happening here? Or, you know, what does this arena think about this? And, you know, as soon as he's getting the information, he's relaying it back to me. And um, for weeks, like, we hadn't heard anything about Michigan and obviously it was the, the first like road game all year. I was like a week before the game, like last Tuesday, I was like, okay, at this point, haven't heard anything from Pete, you know, I'm, I'm just prepared to, to call it in studio because last season when we couldn't travel, we called all of our games in studio, whether it be in sports talk or off a projector in the classroom or in the kitchen sometimes it was just like that's what it was that was all of last season when it came to road games whether it be men's basketball women's basketball men's soccer that's what we had to resort to so to not hear anything back from Michigan it hurt it hurt me so much because it was like dude this is by far the biggest game of the year this is the biggest game for Seton Hall basketball in, in quite some time and I would have loved to be in Ann Arbor to experience that. And, you know, for, for so long, it was like, okay, didn't hear anything back. And then Friday, like three days, four days before the game, Pete sends me an email and it says, hey, and you can pick up your passes on game day. And I read that and I just blew up. Like, it was just, I was like, dude, like, this is serious. So then that, then... Obviously, you know, I went back into sports director mode. We had to set up travel arrangements and what was going to happen. Like, we were doing this 
on Monday, the day before the game. Like we were still working out airline and hotel and it was like a mess. So for all of that to happen leading up for weeks and then days to, to mere hours before the game, like just landing in Detroit and just getting to our hotel at five and like setting up like once the game clock hit zero, it was just a culmination of everything we had worked towards and all the all the, the, the roller coaster that it was trying to set this game up. Once we got to zero, I was like, okay, for for all the the the, the difficulty that this game has been putting us through, let's just go out and have the absolute best call that we can have. And I feel like we did that. That is incredible, Evan. That that really is because very few people that have been sports directors at WSU, like myself and you and others, they know what it's like to schedule these games, work with athletics. And now you're adding in a whole nother layer, which is the, a global pandemic and the restrictions that one arena might have versus another arena. And that could change day to day. So it shows the resiliency of you and your staff and to be able to get that done and say, you know what, we're going to wing it even if we had to the day before. And you got there and you got to be a part of history. And that's just incredible. And before we get into the game further, I want to ground everyone and just touch base on you as a person and just want to hear about your story. What brought you to Scene Hall? Why Scene Hall? Your major and what's your experience been like, obviously, outside of the Michigan game right now? What's been your experience with Scene Hall Athletics covering the different teams at the university? Yeah, well, um, when I was in high school, uh, I, I ran track and I did a whole bunch of stuff. And it, it, came, it became abundantly clear, I'd say, my, my senior year. I was like, dude, I'm not running track in, in college. Like, I need to figure out a lane and I need to figure out what I like to do and, you know, a career path for that. And um, so I was like, okay, uh, I like to write and I like sports. And I was like, boom, just journalism major, real easy. You know, it might not be the best decision. I should have probably gone visual sound media or, you know, my mom was trying to push me towards business. And it was like, like, math is just not, not for me. So I was like, okay, I knew what I wanted to do. And then the high school that I went to, like so many people had gone to Rutgers, like every year, we were basically like a, a Rutgers subdivision. Senior Hall immediately caught my eye. Um, when I went on the open house and I went hired a venture, it was like just, just so many things, you know, the, the sights, the sounds, the, the community, everything about the university drew me in, how it was like kind of, kind of tight knit, but also like really open for, for, for everyone to, to come in and, and take part and, and be a part of that family. And I'll never forget it. Um, I think it was Pirate Adventure or maybe it was Orientation. Um, this is years ago at this point, but um, we went on a tour. It was me and a couple other guys. I'm really close to still. Um, Jose Feliciano offered to take us on a tour on the radio station. And he led us around, showed us the studios, and he was like, yeah, you get to do this, and you get to do this. And this whole time, like, I lost track of how many times my jaw dropped. It was just like, dude, this is the place for me. 
And then from there, like, it just took off. It just took off like a rocket. Like, once I joined the radio station, obviously you got to go through the class and you got to do all the special stuff. But, like, I felt like I wasn't doing enough. Like, people didn't really know me. Like, when you're joining a class, you know, that big. Like, I wasn't the only person I wanted to join the radio station. You have 40, 50 people wanting to join every year. So it's like, I was like, okay, what can I do to stand out? So I was taking extra AP shifts and I was counting cans for, for food drives and I was helping clothes drives and I was staying after, you know, doing this and that. And I was like, okay, like people are starting to figure out who I am and I'm taking AP shifts over winter break. And I was like, okay, the spring season hits. And it was then the, the sports director, my freshman year, Matt Ambrose, he put me on the baseball and softball schedules you know, and like beat writer and in studio capacity. And it was like, just getting those opportunities, just getting my feet wet and being on broadcast and, and being in the studio with, to, to put me in those situations, it, it led me to believe like, you know, maybe I am doing something right. Maybe I, I am on the right path. Maybe this is where I'm supposed to be because you know, that led me to believe, like, okay, you're putting the work in and people are, are seeing that. And then, like, over the summer, um, Dalton Allison, who was elected sports director, going into that next year, he was like, all right, I think you should write articles for us, like, you know, for the website. He was like, what do you want to write about? And, Chris, there was, like, maybe six or seven dudes writing about the MLB, at the time. And I was like, like, that's cool. Like baseball is cool. Like, don't get me wrong. Baseball is great. But I was like, that's not like, there's only so much you can do when there's six, seven other people releasing articles on divisions, like the same day you are. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to write about the WNBA. And every week I was sending 1500, 2000 word articles to, to Michael Daly, the then web editor. And it was like, I was doing that every week. And it was like, okay, he's, he's participating and he's showing that he wants to be involved and he's consistent. And then once that, that fall season hit my sophomore year, man, it was like every time a cover was posted on the Facebook, I, I, I jumped on it. It was like, I was shot out of a cannon. It was everything. Like those random women's soccer games at 6 p.m. on a Wednesday, you know, so I was, my grades was, was slipping at, at the time. I was missing classes, but it was like, dude, like, I need these covers. <laughs> like, for, for, for all the work I, I put in and where I wanted to, to be at, I was like, dude, these are literally opportunities to me. Not only make a good impression, but show my improvement and show that I can, you know, hold my own on these, on these broadcasts. And then there was one of those conferences like NAB or CBI, whatever it was. And Wilner reached out to me and he was like, I'm not going to say anything about the basketball schedule, but just know your contributions are, are, are being noticed. He said that. And I was like, okay. And then like, as it was nearing basketball season, I was like, at the time I had no like concept of how scheduling worked, I was like, I just want a game. I just went in just floor level. I was like, just give me a game 
and I'm cool with that. And the basketball schedule came out, and I was on like eight games. I had like two trips, and I was like, I was like, wow, like this is, this is pretty dang cool, you know, to to put the work in, and for the right people to take notice of that, and to be rewarded. It just went to show that you know the, the hard work really did pay off. And then from there, I, I never looked back. That was my sophomore year, and then you know, obviously basketball season, and then COVID hit. And then I was elected to be the assistant sports director. And then, you know, we had that entire last year that was just a whirlwind. And then, I mean, now being in the, the position, like you said, it's, it's a, a, a very uh, rarefied air type of, of community. You know, there's only so many of us. So it's like to, to, to be next up in that lineage of, of sports directors and, and being able to, to win that election in April and, and putting in the work over the years and now being where I am and, and it all really culminating in, in yesterday's game and, and being in that atmosphere. It was, man, it was, it was a sight. It was a sight to see. I, I'm, I'm smiling and obviously you can't see that on a podcast, but a lot of what took, got you to being sports director in, in your now final year is very similar to my journey. Um, that sophomore year was huge for me. I had a very experienced group above me that were some of the best broadcasters WSU has had in the recent memory. Um, but I was so hungry for any opportunity I could. My favorite sport was soccer. So I was jumping at every chance I could do to, to do soccer and prove myself there. Uh, going into college, I knew nothing about basketball, nothing. And I learned it because I wanted to broadcast. So just taking those opportunities, getting out of your comfort zone, that's what WSU, WSU allows you to do, which is so incredible. And, you know, you follow in the footsteps of, of some fantastic sports directors in the past. And, uh, you know, recently, uh, as of yesterday now, as we're doing this interview, the win against number four Michigan took Twitter by storm. Uh, but no one, in my opinion, did it better and put it in better words than Bob Lee, the ESPN legend who is a former WSU sports director himself. And he said it took 32 and a half years, but the heavens have realigned and properly. And because God winked, it was at the free throw line raise one pirate nation for this team and the boys of 89. It was never a foul back then as a hashtag. It kind of reads biblical. And I'm sure for many Pirate fans, it felt that way. And you had the unique experience to actually work with Bob Lee. What was that experience briefly like? Yeah, um, so that was my sophomore year. Um, the home game against St. John. Initially, I wasn't scheduled to be on this game. It was uh, a TBD slot. And because I was putting in so much work even during the season even after the schedule came out Dylan Allison put me on that broadcast with him and Michael Daly and again like getting that opportunity getting that recognition from him like Dalton has has been such a a, a, a role model for me like he, he trusted me to, to put me in some some really tough spots and uh, I, I'm proud to say that it made me better for, for, for lack of a better word, but yeah, he put me on that game and the whole day it was just like, dude, like I, I can't 
believe that we're not not even just being like in the same vicinity as as Bob Lee because he's like he'll he's he came to the radio station before that to to speak with the the, the sports staff and you know take questions things of that nature like he's always gonna help and and give back to to the staff because he's just that he's just so uh, warm and and loving and caring so like before the game there was like uh there was like a reception for for him and after the reception like i was there and michael Dale, like everyone you know that had gone to the game was was there or that were credentialed meet i should say was at the reception and you know me and michael got a chance to talk with him and you know he told us like keep up the great work and you know we had a bright future and then after the broadcast it was like not after the broadcast after the reception there was a photo op and it was like all of the the sports directors i think and then like maybe a few other people but looking up there and seeing clayton collier matt ambrose stalin allison probably and i was like dude like that's that's a murderer's row and i was like if, if i could just you know get to that point like i'll feel pretty darn good about myself and, and, and the work that i put in but like being on the broadcast itself, it was like, I think, he, I think he came in the second half. Like before that, I was just focusing on, on doing my work. And then it, it felt like, 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 a, like a, an aura. Like I just felt it like coming over my shoulder. And I was like, I turned and it was him. And I was like, oh man. And then like he sits down and he's right next to me. And he's like, you guys have an extra headset and I gave him my headset and I was like, you know, dang, like I wanted to be, but like to give him my, I was like, dude, like I'm just like every picture of, of that day, like you just see me just right next to him, just typing away, <laughs> just typing away, just, just trying to pre-write the, the recap article and sending out live tweets and stuff. But to be next to him and to, to pick his brain, at the reception and to, to, to watch him go to work. I mean, man, he's, he's one of the best for a reason. Yeah, it was incredible. I was there that day. I was at the reception in that photo that you talked about. Matt Laughlin was there. There's so many greats that were in that one photo together. And I remember just being the one guy that works in the sports industry that's not in broadcasting, that's standing up here with some broadcasting legends. And I felt that way. So it's great to hear that you were there and you got to experience that because that is something that no one can ever take away from you. It's such a unique experience and it's really only affordable to people that are in your role now. So it speaks volumes. And I think as we get into now this actual game, the overarching thing from this entire massive victory is 1989 and the national championship game and the loss. You got to speak with Sal Petruzzi, the former WSU sports director at the time, who called that game for WSOU. In, in short, what was his overall mindset of what that game still means to him in terms of the impact it has? Man, getting a chance to speak with, with Sal was such an honor. Like, before that episode, we had recorded um, a Pirate Rewind on the Michigan State game, and... Chris Russo was there. Michael Daly was there. Warner Lewis was on that episode. And I was producing it. Like I was, you know, I sent out the Zoom link and I was just sitting in the background listening to, to them tell tales. Just a great time. And then afterwards, I told them I want to do one on the Michigan game. <clears throat> and I was like, 
you know, um, at that at that time, I was thinking, I was like, yeah, you know, it'll just be me and like a couple other staff members. And then Chris Russo said, hey, wait a minute. My my champ mentor was on the, the game. And I was like, I was like, what? He was like, yeah, yeah, my, my, my mentor, Sal. He called all those games in that tournament run. I was like, Chris, I was like, if you get me his information, if you get him on this podcast, I will love you forever. And he was like, yeah, sure. Like, let me just reach out to him and make sure it's okay. So he gave me Sal's contact information and we set it up um, for Friday, like three, four days before the game. And at the time, I was just like, man, like it's, that's the, it's the most important thing for me with Pyre Rewind is, is getting people that were on the broadcast or involved in some capacity because I don't want to just throw random people on a, a, a podcast about a specific game if they weren't, you know, deeply tied to it or, you know, involved. You know, so to pick his brain and, you know, obviously current sports director, former sports director, he was a former sports director. Like it was just, um, just a, an instant bond. Like <clears throat> everything that he shared with us, you know, and, and it discussed even more than just the game itself. Like he mentioned, you know, the, the great Alaskan shootout and um, the, the Georgetown game in, in January and, you know, the lead up to the, the Michigan game and how the pirates were just firing on all cylinders and the final four game against Duke when they were down like 18, 19 points and they ended up winning by, by a ridiculous amount. Like he just really encapsulated the, the resiliency and the resolve of that team. And then to, to, to hear him talk about the Michigan game and how, you know, the excitement in the arena was, was palpable, you know, um, and how just exciting it was to be involved in something like that. And, you know, obviously like being, up close and personal and getting a chance to, to be on one of the best games we'll ever see. And it was just like getting to hear about that. And then, you know, obviously him discussing afterwards, like how the Seton Hall team carried themselves, you know, in the wake of the game and, you know, what happened after that. And just like getting a chance to talk to him easily, easily one of the coolest experiences I've, I've ever had. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I think it's, 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 it's unique because I remember, for us last year, uh, there was some special things that were going to maybe be done for the 2011 Big East Baseball Championship that, that took place. Uh, I was down in Clearwater when they won that. Um, and we were going to do like a whole 10-year anniversary thing. But then everything with COVID, obviously, could put that. But, you know, getting that opportunity, like you said, it's sometimes you have that instant connection where you, you can potentially be intimidated as a student by someone in this type of role, but then you have that shared bond and, and just something where you can both relate as an experience to, and it's just, a, it's a great thing. And I now want to shift over towards the actual game itself and looking at the first half, heaven, there's a couple things that really stood out to me in the first half. One Hunter Dickinson is going to have a very long NBA career. He is very good. Uh, I was terrified that Bryce Aiken hurt himself again. And I thought that Aikobiagu defensively was going to be the only reason that the Pirates stayed in the game versus number four, Michigan. And they went into halftime down 31 to 28. Uh, 
But the most glaring stat to me through that first half was that Michigan was 0 for 7 from 3. What were your thoughts on the first half of play when the Pirates went into halftime down 31 to 28? Going into it, like, our focus was on matchups and also which end the Pirates would be able to capitalize on. Um, They had just played Sunday against Yale. Quick turnaround. They flew to Ann Arbor at night, had a morning shoot-around, afternoon practice, whatever it was. So it's like, okay, they only had one day of rest. At this point, you've got to focus um, just really heavily on the game plan. And it was it was apparent that that defense was the end that they were going to really lock in on and, and try and make Michigan work and also try to wear them down. Um, Hunter Dickinson is something else. Like that entire first half, he was just a force. Like he's he's just so massive. I think he's I think the it was like he's seven one two sixty. And, you know, when he sets a screen, it's like impossible for the guard to get around. And then he's sealing in the paint and he's tipping out boards. And I think he had two blocks in the first half and he was showcasing the, the post moves and he had like a little jump hook. Like he was displaying the total package. So your point about him having a long NBA career, I could see it because, you know, the the the, the potential that, that he showcased throughout that first half you know, with the, the variety of coverages the Pirates were throwing at him was just insane. Um, as far as Ike Obiagu, man, his development on the whole this season, like not even focusing more so just on the first half, but what he's shown this entire year is phenomenal. Like every game, it seems, this season, he has four or five blocks. And then in the foul category, you know, I think I think last game he finished with three fouls, but in the first half, he had four blocks and no fouls. Like, I think he erased consecutive possessions that 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 led to, to points on the other end for the Pirates. Like, what he was able to do while Hunter, while Hunter Dickinson was still you know getting his buckets, you know he was making him work for everything. And Dickinson, you know, he's gonna score. He was an All American last year for a reason. But Ike made it really tough, and he altered Michigan's game plan tremendously. Um, as far as how they perform from behind the arc, going into that game, I believe the Pirates had only allowed a total of five three-point makes in their first two games. And I think their opponents were shooting around 11% from behind the arc. So, like, their defense on the perimeter this year, the addition of of Kadari Richmond, and then you have Miles Kale back for another season. You have Jared Roden. Those two have always been really stout on the perimeter. Then you have guys like Bryce Aiken and Jameer Harris, who they may not be, you know, really the the, the best defenders. They were still, you know, they're given effort on that end. Like, they're not just turnstiles. So, I mean, the Pirates were in every passing lane. They were getting deflections. The rotations were, were crisp. And they were forcing Michigan into tough shots. And they also had a little bit of luck on their side as well. But, you know, for the, the Wolverines to go 0 for 7 from 3 behind the arc in that first half, when entering the game, I think they were shooting around 36% from three-point range. It was like, 
we were witnessing a, a defensive masterclass. And the Pirates, they had a, a few turnovers in the first half. I believe they finished with six turnovers in that first half of play. And, and one of which I remember an outlet pass that was thrown too far and sailed out of bounds that could have been points for the Pirates. So, you know, if things broke the Pirates' way in the first half, they could have went halftime with the lead. So it just went to show, you know, okay, this team is a lot better than, than people thought. And Michigan is not going to be able to, to sleepwalk their way to win this one. So after that first half of play, we were sitting in the upper deck me and, and Jory Mickens, who was on play-by-play, we were really confident, you know, from that, that first 20 minutes that we had seen. Uh, o- overall, the Pirates played incredible defensively. I think this was easily one of their best defensive performances that I've ever seen during the Kevin Willard era. I mean, that, that's how good they were. And Coach Willard himself, who is always critical of the team, in his post-game interview, immediately said how happy he is where the defense is playing right now at the start of this season. Uh, you know, looking at the beginning part of that second half, though, at one point, Michigan looked like they were pulling away with it. They had an 11-point lead. What did you see there? What, what was going on from, like, a courtside perspective that kind of gave you that view into what seemed to not be working well? What adjustments were Michigan making coming out of that first half that really started to give the Pirates some trouble? Yeah, I mean, and credit to Jawan Howard. He is a tremendous coach. You know, he, he earned that extension that he got. But coming out of the of the first half, you know, they came out immediately and went to a set for Hunter Dickinson. You know, he, he had a jumper. And then they just kept applying pressure. You know, Devontae Jones, he, he had a couple free throws. And then they got just more buckets off the turnover. And, like, they just were, were really flying on all cylinders. I mean, coming out of the break, it felt like the Pirates – were a little, I guess, uh, unprepared. Um, this being, they're, they're really like their first time in quite a while, you know, being in such a hostile environment. You know, like last season, for a lot of those road games, there weren't fans. You know, like some of the players on this team hadn't experienced this in quite some time. So to be in that arena and, and just experience how loud it was, like the Pirates went a while until they got, uh, a field goal in the first half. Like it was, it was quite some time, you know, until Jameer Harris broke the the drought with that, that step back three to really keep things um, in, in check. So credit to, to Michigan, they went up big time, but the pirates never really let their foot off the gas. Like they came out and they weren't getting the best shots. I wanted the Pirates to attack more on the interior. I felt like after their first two games against Perry Dickinson and Yale, they had done really well uh, on the interior. And in this game, you know, I was just really weary of three-point negative regression hitting them. They had shot, I think, in the first half um, about 35 36% from three. So I just didn't want them to come out and go like 0 for 10 in the second half and then just, you know, fall behind by a bunch. So I wanted them to attack more in the paint because they only had four paint points in the first half. And then they came out and they, they, they really rejected my thoughts and they just kept going to what was working for them. And, and again, credits to the Pirates. Defensively, keep in mind this entire time, 
while their their offense might have been lacking, they really forced uh, they really forced Michigan to work for everything. You know, the jumpers they were all contested, and you know Michigan was getting points off of Pirates' mistakes. The the turnover that led to the driving layup from Devontae Jones and a fast break to put Michigan up eleven. At that point, Seton Hall really locked in, and they they limited those those mistakes. And you know it was then where they started to make that run. One person who will absolutely be on radar now for Seton Hall Pirate fans is Trey Jackson. Uh, he had 13 points, but the points don't matter in this game. That performance that he had is going to wake up a lot of eyes. He was a matchup nightmare for Michigan. Tell me about Trey Jackson. Last summer, once he transferred in, I had the opportunity to write the, the preview article on, on Trey Jackson for the website. And I was like, okay, former four-star top 100 recruit, really athletic, didn't work out at Mizzou, but he has all the tools and he's like 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, he could jump out the gym. I was like, what exactly am I missing here? Because I'm, I'm watching like game footage, highlights. I'm like, dude, this guy is really good. Like what went wrong at his previous stop in? You know, part of a, a stacked class, and uh, I, there were thoughts of, or there were questions of, you know, his work ethic or whatever it was. Missouri, I guess, wasn't the place for him. Once he transferred in, um, we didn't think he'd be granted that that waiver. But once he got that that immediate eligibility waiver, I was like, okay, I'm interested to see, you know, what he brings to the to the rotation. And he didn't play that much, like all of last season. As soon as he was granted that waiver he didn't really see as much time as I thought he would, which again, you have Sandro in front of you. You have Tyrese in front of you. You have Roden. Like it's, it's going to be tough to find really any minutes on the wing or, you know, just in general, like in the front court. Now this season, I was like, okay, Tyrese is, is still here. Pirates brought in Yetna. Obiagu's back, you know, but uh, early, you know, with that, that rodent injury, there was some, some time in the front court available. And Trey came out in that exhibition against Misericordia and just really put everyone on notice. And I'm like, okay, yes, it's Misericordia, but this is a, a new Trey Jackson. You know, he looks much more uh, sure of himself. I think he's 6'10 now, so he probably grew. But it was like just watching him in that game and, and how he carries himself. And then in the Fairly Dickinson game, the Yale game, I'm like, okay, this guy is really good. He's got that athleticism I mentioned. He can shoot the lights out. If, you, if, you, if he has that time and space, I think Willard said it. If he has time and space, he's got one of the prettiest jumpers we've ever seen. And then yesterday in the Michigan game, it was like watching him play with that fearlessness there were multiple plays yesterday where I was like this guy is putting the team on his back he had a driving layup at the end of the first half that was the the, the last Pirates field goal I think in the first half where he finished it over Hunter Dickinson and he like rose up in like small quarters and finished like through the contact maybe it was a foul maybe it wasn't like he jumped off a trampoline and he knocked Hunter Dickinson, like, back off his base. It's like you're doing that to a man who's 7'1", 260, jumping at you full speed. He's a different beast. And then in the second half, he finished that that contested layup over 
Musa Diabate. Diabate being one of the the best defensive prospects potentially for for next year's draft that uh, I've seen. Just a tremendous, tremendous player. And then to to hit that three to respond to the the three that Terrence Williams hit for Michigan. I think the three for Terrence Williams put them up five or nine, excuse me. Trey came right back down on the other end and hit a catch and shoot three to keep the Pirates within range. I mean, throughout the game, playing with that fearlessness, that selflessness, crashing the glass, getting those boards above the rim, knocking down timely buckets, attacking the interior, which the Pirates needed, you know, to keep Michigan honest. The sky's the limit for him. You know, he's always had the talent. He's got the pedigree. He's got the athleticism. I'm excited to see what he brings to this team for the rest of the season, for sure. Joining me now on Courtside Pirates is Heaven Hill, the sports director of 89.5 FM WSU, Seen Hall's award-winning radio station. And Evan, the overall arching thing of this game, though, and down the stretch was the play of Bryce Aiken and Jared Roden really st- stepping up. And they did so in a very hostile environment. And it's the, really the first game for the Pirates on the road in a real atmosphere in two, almost two seasons now. What was that like for you when you saw the level of play that Roden and Aiken were performing down the stretch and in that atmosphere? Yeah, I mean, with Roden, it's like we've seen him from, from the start. Like, he's a senior. I'm a senior. We came in at the same time. Uh, my freshman year, he was cool with one of the, the girls that lived like on the same floor as my friend Ben, like in his suite. Like it was like we I've seen his development like hand in hand, like all like as I was putting at work at the radio station, he was slowly getting better and better. Like it was it's crazy how how almost intertwined our development has been. But like, again, that fearlessness, it's like he was here when when Miles was was taking those shots down the stretch. He was here when Sandro was that guy taking those shots down the stretch. Last season, he was the Robin to, to Sandro's Batman. Sometimes he was the Batman, honestly, making those plays in the clutch. And now this season, it's like I knew he was going to come out with, with uh, a rare intensity. You know, going up against someone like Caleb Houston, who's getting top 10 looks in every mock draft you'll see. I'm like, okay, Roden... Obviously, you know, for, for every player, the goal is to, to play at the highest level. He's going to use this game on national television to go out, make a statement, send a message. I felt like he took that Houston matchup personal. And it showed, you know, in the box scores, Houston was, was pretty much nullified on offense. But for Roden on offense, the full package was on display. The, the catch and shoot threes, the, the crash in the glass, driving to the basket, hitting those, those tough mid-range pull-ups, like those are the shots that, that lead to a, a long year, a long career, I should say, at the next level. You know, just being able to get to any spot you want and, and, and rise up over the defense. He put it all on display and in front of a pretty dang big audience. And I'm excited to, to, to see what he has in store for the rest of the season. Um, as far as Bryce Aiken, the, the hype last season, once he transferred in, it was like, dude, you know, like, yeah, Miles left, but we're bringing in a 2,000-point scorer, you know, and a New Jersey native. Like, we can't wait, you know, for him to, to, to go crazy. And then, like, first game of the year against Louisville, you know, he gets hurt, and then he goes down. It's like 
all of last season. He was just in and out of the lineup. And he had that one game against Creighton at home where it was like, this guy, when he's hot, he is a flamethrower. And, you know, once he came back for another year, it was like just such a luxury to have someone who's so trustworthy with the ball in his hands and just unbelievable shot creation ability and and deep shooting range to have that in in any capacity, whether it's in the starting lineup or off the bench, is a luxury that not too many coaches have. So last game, he leaves in the first half with that injury, which I'm sure you're aware of. And like once that happened, I was sitting next to Jordan. I was like, man, like this game just got really tough because, you know, once he goes down, Willard, you know, like, you know, d- does he play a shorter rotation? Does he go to someone like Jahari Long, who has never been in uh, a situation as big, as as serious, as as prestigious as this? Like, and then to see him return to the game, and, and it, I was like, okay, this, like, that just, uh, a wave of relief just washed over us at that point. I was like, all right, at this point, we're locked in. And the plays he made down the stretch, I mean, that snatchback mid-range pull-up he had to tie the game at 62, one of the, the toughest shots I've ever seen. He was just getting tough buckets. That, that three-pointer to tie the game at 57, like, those are, are the moments that those are the plays. Those are the, the really what brought him to this team. You know, those are the reasons why we, we, we went out and targeted him because – he is a shot maker who is primed and ready for those big moments, you know. So to have him leading this team and and, and just being such a, a force and an asset on the offensive end is exhilarating. So I think as great as this game was, the one area I think that we collectively can all agree on was the offense did not perform fantastic, especially for spurts at the time. Uh, overall, the team shot 40% from the floor, 30% from the th- uh, three, and – 55% from the line, which is just not going to cut it down the stretch again. It just shows how good that defense actually was. I think Kadari Richmond has a lot to learn and a lot to improve on, but I think he has clearly the talent to do so, and he's got good guys around him to do it. But looking at the overall picture, neither one of us were alive in 1989. Uh, we did not see the NCAA tournament loss to Michigan in the finals live. We sure, certainly weren't students then. Uh, but it's been this ugly cloud that has hung over the heads of all pirate fans for 32 and a half years. And while it doesn't erase the pain, it serves as retribution, especially with the victory ending on free throws, which is just ironic. Uh, and it couldn't have been really more poetic that that's how it took place. And while we didn't experience that tournament, we've heard it regularly on hall line and following every game on WSU hall line takes place where fans can call in and, I was on WSU for six years between undergrad and grad school. And some of the most ridiculous things that's ever happened to me while I was in college were were listening to some of these calls on hall line and taking these calls in a normal game. It's crazy. What was it like last night? Man, I think, I think that might've been probably the longest hall line ever. Honestly, like it went until like 1240, 1250. It was just like, everybody wanted to call in. And I mean, yeah, like you have, you have the usual suspects, you know, the, the Nick from Milburn, Jeff from Point Pleasant, you know, Dave from Maplewood and Andrew from Orange. Like you have the, the same guys that call in religiously 
every every game, but for a lot of them, you know, these are these are like grown people with, with families and, and generations and generations of, of Seton Hall fans like that have been listening and, and watching this team for, for decades. So a lot of them they they were alive and they did see that that nineteen eighty nine game. So for for them like this was the, the biggest win of, of their life, honestly. Like so to 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 get to be on the call and for them to get a chance to experience that I think I think Michael who was whole line one yesterday, I think he said one of the callers might have been crying. Like I didn't get a chance to, to listen to, to all of it. Um I, I called in. I I know as color playoff players this person that's supposed to call in, but being a sports director, I get a chance to, to bend the rules a little bit. So I got a chance to call in and they let me just go on a, a spiel for like 10, 15 minutes, just thanking everybody and, and, and detailing the, the day and how wild everything was. But again, like just going back to the callers, they are what makes Hall Line great and giving them that platform and that opportunity to, to express themselves, whether it be about the game or just talking about their, their Seton Hall fandom as it was for a, a few of them and their experiences yesterday. It, it's just so great, you know, to, to have something like basketball and Seton Hall basketball that, that brings people together from, from various walks of life. The Gavit tip-off games uh, have been a huge success so far for the Big East. Following Seton win over number four Michigan, the, the conference improved at the time to 4-0 and this year in the games, including two top 10 victories. And having this is a huge statement win for the conference in November. And the Pirates still have a ton of big non-conference games on the schedule, but get a massive win early that should see the Pirates be ranked in the next poll. And following this historic victory, the Pirates travel to rocket mortgage fort myers tip-off next week for ohio state and either cal or florida and having the schedule does not get easier uh and the pirates will have to really focus and not have a big letdown in both of those games and uh what are your thoughts on the upcoming stretch of non-conference games and the schedule you know that the pirates put together uh it looks always looks better when you beat a top five team early in the season i uh, know you're going to be going to any of those games yourself as a, as a broadcaster yeah, I'll be in. Um, I'll be in Fort Myers with the uh, the Booster Club. We're we're leaving Saturday, actually, so I get to do all this again, which is really exciting. But um, yeah, the those this non conference slate, Coach Willard does it every year. You know, he packs the non conference slate in an effort to to prepare his team and to get them ready for those uh, in conference games. You know, which are always going to be tough. You know, regardless of who you play. Ohio State, very talented team, just a tremendous roster, extremely deep. You have guys like Michi Johnson, who just came in as a freshman, and he's extremely talented. You've got Justice Suing, and you have Zed Key. You have EJ Liddell, who's an All-American, potentially. Seth Towns, you know, who's Ivy League transfer, so he's got that in common with, with Bryce Aiken. Kyle Young, just such an extremely talented team. Jamari Wheeler as well. Like Ohio State, that game is not going to be easy at all. And then with with Florida, they have looked this season really, really good. Like I didn't expect them to look as, as good as they do. That win over Florida State, I mean, just wow. Like Florida State, that's not a layup by, by any stretch of the imagination and they beat them pretty handily in that one 71 55 just just blowing the doors off of them in the second half I mean 
the the depth on this team. They had Colin Castleton, who's really underrated, and I think he has a great shot at potentially being SEC Player of the Year. I mean, 15 points, 16 rebounds, six blocks, like what he brings to that team and what he showcased last season for them. It's it's some some intense stuff brewing in Florida. And I mean, if the Pirates play Cal, like again, no game is a layup. Like with a big win like Michigan under your belt, potentially the biggest win of the season for, for any team. At that point, the target on your back is that much bigger because now – Sea Hall is going to be ranked, which means Ohio State sees that game as a resume builder. Cal or Florida sees that game as a resume builder. Texas, Rutgers, you know, teams that we play in December, the non-conference slate. Everyone looks at Sea Hall as a resume builder. So now, like you said, you don't want to, to immediately have a letdown after your, your, biggest, your biggest win in program history. You know, so it's up to the Pirates now to, to handle that pressure and I think they can. They have to not have the letdown. I think it helps the Pirates that they don't have another quick game this week to kind of not be settled and they can kind of level what's going on. They can get ready for the new tournament, for the pre-Thanksgiving tournament that they're going to be in uh, and the game against Ohio State on Monday. I think it, it helps them exponentially in that regard. It's also great that you're going to be going with the Booster Club, the best travel trips I ever went on uh, for broadcasting WSOU was always with the Booster Club. So Enjoy that for sure. And I want to shift gears over to the Scene Hall women's basketball team for a few minutes as we start to wrap this up. Uh, the Lady Pirates had a nice bounce back, 87 to 77 victory over Lehigh at Walsh Gym on the same day and night as the number four Michigan game uh, for the men's team to improve the two and one on the young season following a tough loss to Fordham in heaven. I'd covered the women's team since 2009. This is by far my favorite group of women between last season and this season that Coach Bazell has put together. What I love about this team is that they can score at will. And while they need to improve defensively, especially on rebounding, I absolutely love their ability to score. And it starts and ends, for me, with Andre Spinoza Hunter, who is far and away my favorite Seen Hall women's player I've ever covered. Uh, and in the victory over Lehigh, she led the Pirates with 22 points and 10 rebounds. What does she mean to this program? Oh, Andre, Andre means everything to this program. Um, I wrote a, a story on her for my internship at Her Hoop Stats. And basically this was in the middle of last season when she had won back-to-back Big East Player of the Week awards. And, you know, she had averaged like 25 points a game over a six-game stretch. Like what she brought to this team last season. Again, it was the same situation with Trey Jackson and how she was granted that immediate eligibility waiver. Like, it was even more serious because she was a former five-star like this. She, she had come from UConn and Mississippi state. Like she had been at the top of the mountain, you know, reigning threes in the sec championship. And now she's on the pirates. Like at that point you, you knew business picked up. So from there, it's like her, her shooting ability, her rebounding, her, her, her intensity on defense. The fact that, you know, she's always ready, always prepared for the moment. Um, I was on Pirate Primetime with Coach Pazella uh, three days before their exhibition game. And we asked him, you know, what Andra means to the team and, you know, the work that, that you know, they've been putting in. And he mentioned there, there was a, a tough game. 
I think he said it was the St. John's game and they were in the huddle and Bazella was, was, was pretty upset or it was, it was some game. I really wish I could remember this, but like Bazella was angry at, you know, the team's performance, you know, how the game was going. And Andre said like, coach, don't worry. We got you. She said, we got this. And from there again, he was fully trusting her, you know, and her ability. And she went out and did her thing. I mean, you said it. What she brings to this team is unlike any other player, you know, like very few players can heat up the way she can. You know, I said it back in January. I've said it several times. She is a microwave scorer. And, you know, that maybe sounds like an insult, but like she heats up and she heats up quick. And she's got a burner from anywhere on the court. And her being able to play with a fantastic playmaker like Lauren Park Lane or a former teammate in Sydney Cooks, like the chemistry out there is just all the time, firing on all cylinders. And what she's brought to this team is really invaluable. And I think not only will she be on you know the Big East uh, first team, I think she has a, a shot at Big East Player of the Year. I think she's incredible. I, I, I have nothing but great things to say about her. I think her ability to play off the ball, to drive the lane, to score at will, to shut down an opponent – being a floor general, calling out plays to the bench before the bench gives her the play. I, everything about what she does is great. And then you get to speak to her as a person, and she's 10 times better. I, she is the most composed professional person I've ever interviewed from either program, ever. She's that, she's that great at what she does that she has the opportunity this year to really, really take the Big East by storm uh, and do a great, great job for this program and leave a lasting me- legacy. Someone else that has a chance to have a lasting legacy is uh, Lauren Park Lane, who is really just a special player. And she's really elevated her game to the point, in my opinion, where it just looks easy. Uh, And her ability at the point guard position to not only dish the ball, but drive and score herself is incredible. She's coming off of most improved player of the year last year in the Big East. What are you seeing from her so far? Yeah, I I adore Lauren's game. Everything about it. Literally, it's like, Okay, coming in her freshman year, it was like she was immediately handed the reins at point guard. She started every game she played, and she didn't have to score that much because that team had Alexis Lewis, Desiree Elmore, Shadine Samuels. Like She was able to be in that full-time facilitator role. And then next season, with Alexis and Shadine out the door, that's like 30 points per game just leaving. Somebody had to pick up you know, the slack on that end, and – uh, obviously, Andre coming in helped a bunch, but Lauren increasing her points per game, almost like tripling it. I was like, man, what can't she do? Like she came out just crazy. The the UConn game where she stole the show against Paige Beckers and, and Walsh. I think Lauren had 29. I think that night it was like, all right, like everyone is on notice. Like she is like that. And it was every game consistent. I know she's going to show up day in, day out, put the work in. And, and it showed, you know, like you said, she came away with that most improved player of the year award. And I think she deserved it unquestionably. Like no one else had shown that development from year one to year two. And now that she's in year three, I got a chance to speak to her at Big East Media Day. And I was like, okay, we know you can pass. 
we know you can score at will. Like what's, what's next? I was like, like, what are you like? What, what else is there to, to show us? And, and she said it, she was like, I, I got, I got some, some more in my bag. And I was like, okay. And then she comes out. I think she had a, a block and two steals against Lehigh. Like, I guess now she's aiming for the, the defensive player of the year award in the conference, but like 20 points, seven assists. She gets anywhere she wants at will. She's, get into the free throw line, taking a, a bunch of shots, just the poise. I think she had one turnover, like seven assists to one turnover. That's a great night, regardless of, of how you look at it for a point guard. She is just so confident in her ability and it rubs off on everybody on the court. And, and when she's excited, when she's hyped, everybody's hyped. And I just love what she brings to the table. And I think with her and, and Andra, that's the, the most dangerous two-headed monster in the entire conference. The Lady Pirates can enjoy some days off now as they will then head to the Cancun Challenge to face Iowa and Toledo. And let me tell you, that is not a bad way to travel during the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, First, is WSU going to be there? And uh, who do you really want to see step up outside of Andra and Lauren Park Lane and some of these newcomers, new faces of the team uh, during those games? Uh, Well, firstly... WSU is not going to be there. That 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 one hurt me more than anything. Like with Sweeney, I hit him up and I was like, "Hey, you know, like what's the deal with travel this year?" And you know, like you, like I said earlier, we travel with the women's team directly. He was like, "Yeah, yeah, like you guys can you can travel with us everywhere except Cancun." And I was like, "Oh, like that one just that one hurt me because like I knew I was going to be going with the boosters. That's just." what the sports director does for, for every men's Thanksgiving trip, but also like, I want to travel with them. Like they're great people. But I was like, I really want to send someone to Cancun and we couldn't. So that sucks. But you know, um, as far as the, the Iowa and Toledo games, Iowa, one of the best teams in the nation, it's going to be very tough. Caitlin Clark is a different beast. She's a, a walking triple double. I mean, it's going to be very intense. Um, as far as who I'd like to see step up, Andra and Lauren have been tremendous, but I'd like to see more from, from Maya Jackson. I think uh, the team captain, uh, she's a phenomenal player. In my opinion, top three shooter in the conference, you know, with one of the other members of the top three on her team. And Maya, through three games this year, only averaging 10 points. Uh, she had a, a really slow game uh, against uh, Fordham, you know, she wasn't able to do much, got into foul trouble. Um, she had a much better game against Lehigh. She had 13 points with three threes in that one. I'd like to see her come out and and really uh, make a statement in the Cancun Challenge because, like, Lauren and Andre, they're going to step up. Sydney Cooks has been, you know, phenomenal in her two games. She's averaging 17 and a half points in the two games that she's played. But if Maya Jackson can up her play and, and look – like how she looked against Mount St. Mary's and, and, and Lehigh and become that, that fourth member of the big four, as, as I've been calling them, I think that would, that would really, really help the Pirates uh, a long way. Yeah, I think, I think Maya Moore is someone that when I was at WSU was someone I always like looked at as like being the elite player of her time in the women's sports. And I think the team right now, has a tough task coming up against UConn, obviously, once again this year. That game will be sold out. And I do think Maya Jackson has the ability to do well 
this season for the Pirates. She's been so reliable as a player. And I, I, look, I look at her and her leadership skills very similar to what I mentioned Maya Moore when she was playing back in the day at, uh, at UConn because I think they kind of encompass the same type of role, that role and mindset, but they have to also show it on the court. And she has to show it on the court now. And, and she has to get ways to be involved on the court. But what I saw her in the home open, I loved what I saw her early on in a couple of her open threes that she took and she hit them. But then she kind of got lost in the entire game and they didn't really get her going and I, as much as I would have liked her to because I think she was on to something in that game. And I think there's still plenty of time and I would love to see her do something down the stretch um, in these next two games because I think she can really build some confidence going into these games as well. And it's not that she has been bad. She just definitely has more that she can give. And as we start to wrap up here, I love hearing about the experiences of the WSU sports staff. Anytime I get a chance to talk to anyone like you or someone else, I love hearing what is your top arena you've been to to just be at and what's the best atmosphere you ever experienced. And it might be hard with Michigan, but I want to see if you could take Michigan out of the equation and give me the best of each atmosphere and stadium. Okay. Well, I mean, I was going to say Michigan for both, but um, best stadium, I'm going to say the dunk in Providence. Uh, like, I just love the, how it looks. And also we were like right on the baseline, which was like the closest I've been for, for any road game I, I've traveled to outside of women's games where we've been like at the scorers table um, best atmosphere. If we're moving Michigan, the, the Centos center, one of the, the before yesterday, that was the loudest place I've been at like the rock, the Prudential center, it gets loud, but like Centos center, Man, it was like it was like the walls were going to come unglued. And it's always one of the toughest places to play every year. I think at the time that season, I think Xavier was was undefeated at home. So it was like everyone everybody packed like the upper deck, the lower bowl. It was just it was raucous in there. So I would say I would say best arena, the the dunk, you know, the the uh, the Dunkin' Donuts uh, center, and then best best atmosphere definitely the Sintas center for sure yeah i feel like i'm dating myself on this my, my favorite arena that i got to broadcast at was twice my sophomore and senior year um versus notre dame um mm. and just being at the joy center is incredible i mean they, they, it's, it's just an incredible arena notre dame's campus is fantastic uh mm-hmm. I, I am biased i a little bit i am a diehard notre dame football fan so uh you know but just being out there and, and the arena being on campus is just fantastic also thought creighton was absolutely incredible. Uh, I was more shocked with how great their overall facilities were than I was just at the actual one arena itself. But for me, the atmosphere, and I don't know if I'll ever experience it at a game in person, maybe ever um, again, unless if maybe the Mets decide to actually start winning some World Series games uh, in the near future. Uh, And that was uh, Wichita State. This was in 2014, so I was in grad school, and I got uh, to go to this game. And it was Jaron Cena game, as I refer to it as, when the second he touched the ball, he got an air ball. And that place was deafening with air ball chants the entire game to the point that he finished that game with zero points. And Cena Hall got absolutely embarrassed at that game, embarrassed at that game. And it was because of the fans. That place was deafening. And there's not much in Wichita, Kansas. I can tell you that right now. There's nothing besides Wichita State. And... uh but in terms of the experience, it was, I mean, it was deafening. 
Uh, so in closing here, Evan, it, first off, it has been absolutely great to have you on. And uh, just on a high level, what are one or two things that you think each program's team needs to do, men's and women's, to make that push for an NC tournament bid? What, what does each team need to do right to get there? For Seton Hall, I would say continue to do what they've been doing on the defensive end. Like, it's cliche, but defense wins championships. And fairly Dickinson holding them to, to 49 points, like, that may not be impressive because it's fairly Dickinson. But going out and, and holding Yale to 44 and beating Yale by 36 points, like mere days after they had shot 50, 40, 90 from the field against uh, UMass, like, that performance is when I was like, okay, this is serious. And then I guess Michigan holding them under 70 is an accomplishment because like that team is really talented. They're really good. That's a really well coached team with the, the, the talent to back it up. So to go in that environment and claw your way back from an 11 point deficit and doing it defensively, it's not like the pirates were, were shooting the leather off the ball. They really had to lock in on that end and be like sound and, and crisp on, you know, the, the defensive side of the ball. I think with a defense like that, if the Pirates have, you know, a top five, top 10 defense in the nation, they could go way further than anybody anticipated. And then when you have the offensive talent that they do, Jameer Harris, Bryce Aiken, Jared Roden, Kadari Richmond, like when you have guys who can contribute in a variety of ways on the offensive end, all of a sudden you're looking at a juggernaut. Um, as far as the women's team, I would say uh, the newcomers need to add a little bit more. Um, Katie Armstrong and Ariel Cummings, the, the Pirates really brought them in, in my opinion. I'm sure this isn't a unique sentiment, but the Pirates went heavily in the recruiting, uh, the, the transfer market to, to, to add more size to the front court. With the departure of Desiree Elmore, while she was only 5'10", that was, you know, she was a beast on the glass. So the Pirates go out and they get Sidney Cooks, who's 6'4", Ariel Cummings, who's 6'3", Katie Armstrong, who's 6'2". All these players, they're loading up, and I think they're doing that to take on UConn. You know, you've got Olivia Nelson-Adota, who I believe is 6'5". You've got Dorka Juhas, who I'm pretty sure is 6'4", 6'5". You've got uh, uh, Aaliyah, um, what's what, Aaliyah Edwards, like she's really tall. So it's like they're, they're loading up. And I think, you know, uh, if the, the newcomers, if Katie Armstrong and Ariel Cummings and Sidney Cooks, if they can form like a megazord, if they could just gel and, and give the Pirates just a rock solid uh, contributor in the front court, I think the Pirates could easily finish top two and, and make that, that NCAA tournament. Yeah. For the men, I think the defense has to keep playing at an elite level as Ike Obiagu continues to kind of hopefully grow into this new role of dominating that he, he showed yesterday and the chemistry has to be there. They have to continue to, to believe in each other and do one game at a time. Uh, and they need to have the bench continue to play really well. This is going to be a deep rotation team. Guys are going to be fighting for minutes. They have to get to that consistency game in and game out. And they also got to hit their free throws, which has been the story from Seton Hall since I've been at Seton Hall since 2009. And some things just simply don't change. And for the women, I think you, you need to see better defense and overall rebounding. The turnovers is, has been an issue early on. That has to get better. And finally, you, you, hit, you hit it right on the head. The, the players that they brought in as transfers have to step up. 
Well, Heaven, you were you were there. You called the game that most fans have never thought that they would see happen and could only wish to experience the way you experienced it, calling color for what was the number four Michigan victory at Ann Arbor early in this 2021-2022 season. Heaven Hill, the sports director at 89.5 FM WSU, thank you for coming on Courtside Pirates. Thank you for having me, Chris. This is really uh, an awesome community you've built and uh, I love the fact that you've given the fans this platform to, to come on and, and express themselves about the team and I really do appreciate it and being in Ann Arbor that's an experience I'll never forget this brings us to our closing segment courtside perspective Seton Hall traveled to the number four ranked Michigan with 1989 looming over their heads. Seton Hall won 67 to 65 thanks to stellar defense and achieved the best non-conference win in the 118 year history of the program. Helping to ease the pain and get some revenge 32 and a half years later. As the great Bob Lee said on Twitter, it took 32 and a half years, but the heavens have realigned and properly. And because God winked, it was at the free throw line. Raise one, Pirate Nation, for this team and the boys of 1989. Thank you again to the current sports director of 89.5 FM WSOU, Heaven Hill, for joining me on this episode as we discuss Seton Hall's first non-conference road win versus a top five opponent, the Seton Hall women's basketball team, and life at WSOU. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Pazis for updates throughout the season. The next episode of Courtside Pirates will air on Monday, November 29th, following Seton Hall's trip to the Rocket Mortgage Fort Myers tip-off and home against Bethune-Cookman. Again, my name is Chris Pazis. Thank you for listening and happy Thanksgiving. We will see you next time on Courtside Pirates. Courtside Pirates.